Hello, everyone. It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. And today on our program... Every detective, if you become interested in the case, there's that hope that you can sort it out once and for all, that you can get to the bottom of it. The ever-hopeful Errol Morris, who's been trying to get to the bottom of all kinds of things over the last three decades in his films, in his writing, and his investigations of real-life crimes. Errol is best known for his documentary films, which include The Thin Blue Line, Tabloid, Mr. Death, Standard Operating Procedure, Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control, and The Fog of War. The Fog of War uh, was about Robert McNamara, the former Defense Secretary, and the Vietnam War, and it won the Academy Award for Best Feature Documentary. In addition to filmmaking, Errol Morris has also been a prolific writer in recent years, with a stream of intellectually ambitious New York Times essays on subjects like truth and representation in photography, the meaning of names, and theories of scientific progress. And he's been writing books. The latest is A Wilderness of Error, which is coming out in a week or so. It is his re-examination of the case of Jeffrey McDonald, the army doctor serving a life sentence for murdering his wife and children. Errol and I have been having a series of conversations over the past few months about his life, work, and career. I aired one conversation last week on this show, and we are going to hear another one today, in which we delve further into Errol Morris's lifelong fascination with questions of truth, uncertainty, and human error. And uh, just a teaser here, at the end of this interview, you'll hear Errol disclose the subject of his next movie, which is a doozy. And by the way, this interview was recorded quite recently, just a week and a half ago, whereas the one I aired last week had been taped some months previously. So there was a pretty big gap in time between the two conversations. Anyway, here we go. Errol Morris, Truth Seeker, Part 2. Errol, could we spend just a, a couple of minutes talking about Chris Marker? Absolutely. The French filmmaker who just died a couple of days ago, some people credit him with helping to invent a kind of essayistic style of cinema in movies like uh, Sans Soleil, uh, Sunless, one of his most famous films. Did, did he have much of an influence on you? I think an enormous influence. There's a line that I quote fairly often that comes from a Paris Review interview with Gabriel Maria Marquez. And he is talking about his first reading of Kafka's Metamorphosis. And the line is, I didn't know you were allowed to do that. Hey, Errol, can I jump in here? You know, the last time we talked, you gave me the same anecdote exactly about uh, Werner Herzog's uh, Fata Morgana. And I was going to say (laughs) that in documentary, there is a kind of documentary orthodoxy that certainly was in place when I first became interested in making films. For whatever reason, direct cinema, cinema verite, uh, seemed to be the prevailing idiom, the way in which these films should be made. And I remember very early on at the Pacific Film Archive being introduced to a very different kind of documentary, a different way of telling nonfiction stories. It's impossible to look at a film like Saint Soleil or early documentaries 
by Werner Herzog, whether it's Fata Morgana or Ecstasy of the Woodcarver Steiner, there was something amazing about people reinventing cinema at the same time as making movies. Uh, and there are very, very few people that I would even put in that category. You know, particularly today, and maybe I'm just showing my age, you know, there's a feeling of a lot of filmmaking being cookie-cutter, repetitive. Uh, in my least charitable moments, I sometimes call it painting by numbers. <laughs> Errol, uh, can I uh, intrude and just ask one quick question? Both... Um Fata Morgana and uh, Sans Soleil uh, and, and other sort of film essays of that type have the first-person voice of the filmmaker in them. Yours don't. You rarely show up in your own films. I mean, I can hear your voice off camera sometimes during an interview, but very rarely. Uh, you must have made that choice. I'm not going to make myself a character in my movies. I think I did it out of fear. I don't think that it was so much an aesthetic choice as the choice of someone who really didn't trust his voice and felt it would be stronger if I just subtracted myself out of my work, <laughs> or at least on that level. Exactly. I mean, you're, you're very strongly in your work in all kinds of ways. And in fact, uh, I, as someone who's um, obviously, I think it's plain by now, a fan of your work, uh, I'm constantly thinking about you while watching your films even though they're about other things. Fair enough. <laughs> I don't think I'm the only one either. I think the uh, the style is such that you can't help but think about the guy behind the camera or behind the Interatron, the device you use sometimes to interview people. Um, Here's another pet peeve of mine about documentary. <laughs> while okay. we're on the subject. Sure. There's this idea that documentary has to be about social good, and it seems like a cruel and mean-spirited thing to say, and it probably is. And it's not as though I don't believe in social activism. I do. But somehow the desire to make interesting films isn't really about simply redressing wrongs or calling attention to injustice. It really is still about making films, about creating a, a vision of the world or creating an alternative world. You know, one of the reasons I'm so proud of, and I am proud of the Thin Blue Line, I'm proud of the investigation because I think it was an amazing investigation. I wish I had written it up as a book, and I still may, because the story of how I investigated that murder is really even more amazing than the film which came out of it. But I felt with the Thin Blue Line, I created a way of telling a story that was different. Maybe I was able to have my cake and eat it, too. I was able to be a social activist or to try to right some kind of wrong. And at the same time, I could make an art film that answered to my own interests. I remember this uh, reporter in Dallas who said to me, aren't you embarrassed? It's the aren't you embarrassed prelude to something. <laughs> aren't you embarrassed? that you spent so many years making an art film where you could have made just a straight-ahead documentary that would have taken much less time and gotten them out of prison that much sooner. Well, gee, <laughs> what am I supposed to say? I could add, aren't you embarrassed that you even waited to make the film? Why not just hand your evidence over to somebody 
immediately uh, and not make the guy you well, know twist in the wind any longer than he had to. I'm just here's the I don't rub. really mean that, Errol. I'm just saying you know one could ask that question. Yeah, and let's say the question has been asked, and now I'll answer. It. <laughs> um, and it's something that really does make the thin blue line. I don't know if it makes it unique, but it certainly makes it unusual that I was investigating with a camera. When Emily Miller, in front of my camera, says that she failed to pick him out in a police lineup, she's admitting perjury without even knowing it. She has forgotten that she testified to the exact opposite at trial under oath. So at that moment, this is not someone reenacting something. This is a uh, honest-to-God interview with a woman revealing something on camera publicly. Now, now is she the one who, who talked about, rather wistfully, her love of detective fiction and her the idea... The very same. And her idea that she always imagined that she might solve some great crime or... But or... you don't know when you're watching <laughs> the film, I know, that when Emily Miller says to my camera that she had failed to pick Randall Adams out in a police lineup, that that piece of evidence, and it is evidence, first of all, it was submitted. Those interviews in toto were submitted as evidence in federal and state court in Texas. And I would say that piece of information, I could cite maybe 10 of them, but that piece of information led to the conviction being overturned. Well, well, Errol, one thing I did want to ask you in this interview is how you get people to open up and sometimes betray themselves in front of a movie camera when, in most cases, movie cameras just make people tighten up and be more guarded. You have this woman who had testified in a case, had been a a star witness in a case, that ended up convicting a man for murder and initially having him sentenced to death. And here she is on camera in front of you, not only copying to what you just described as, as essentially perjury, admitting to having failed to identify him when, in fact, in the court case, she said she had identified him, right? They said she had identified him. But also, she goes off in a kind of almost dreamy state, talking about her love of fictional adventures and things like that, where she easily opens herself up to the accusation of having pretty much made up all of her testimony, or much of it. Um, How did you get her into that state? Did you slip something into her drink? Uh, I gave her the opportunity to talk. And well, you have a knack for getting people to open up in ways that they may later regret. Um, and I know I haven't met you, but I've seen you, you on film and stuff, and you seem like a really benevolent fellow, uh, a very comforting kind of fellow. Do you think that's part of it? Do you just lull people into a state of, you know, sort of openness like that? Or I don't really know. Well, you're obviously very good at it. I don't know why I'm good at interviewing. I mean, it is a question that I I think about. I think there's a combination of factors. I mean, the Interatron, which I developed, I believe does help, but I didn't have the Interatron when I made the Thin Blue Line. That wasn't done. Exactly, yeah. With the Interatron. Yeah. Um, and I want to explain for the radio audience, the Interatron is a device you invented that 
projects your image in front of the camera so that when people you're interviewing people, they're looking directly into an image of your face and at the same time directly into the camera. And I'm looking at an image of their face and directly into a second camera <laughs> so that the cross-connected cameras, it's almost as if we're looking, sitting you know, directly in front of each other and looking directly into each other's eyes. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I can only say that you do have a knack for getting people to confide things that may not be in their own best interests at all times, and then they later, sometimes later, feel betrayed, as Joyce McKinney did after Tabloid came out. In fact, I just finished watching a, a delightful uh, clip on YouTube of Joyce McKinney sort of crashing the party at a screening of Tabloid, jumping on stage and taking over the mic, and kind of good-naturedly saying you you screwed her, you know, in that film. Of course, I don't, I don't agree with Joyce for many, 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 many reasons. <laughs> uh, I mean, one of the ironies of that whole story, you're really not somebody's publicist when you're making a movie. And they are surely aware of that fact. It doesn't mean that I'm out to get somebody. In fact, I like to think, on the other hand, I, I'm out not to get people. You know, my job, as I define it, is to capture the complexity of the person I'm talking to. Uh, and if I've done that, I've done my job. I can rest easy. Joyce is unendingly complicated. Uh, she's been unendingly litigious for some 30 or 40 years. If she's suing me, I'm at the end of a very long <laughs> line of of uh, supposed defendants. Well, well, uh, yeah, and it's interesting also um, because among your films, if I were to put uh, The Thin Blue Line at one end where you doggedly went after a very clear and categorical idea of the facts of the case, in tabloid, I would put it at the opposite end exactly because you end up throwing up your hands and saying, who knows, Joyce McKinney? Maybe it did happen the way she says, which, by the way, was this crazy sex scandal uh, that happened in the 1970s, and she professes to be an innocent girl who was just following her true love. Others called her a kidnapper and even a rapist of a man who was uh, in England at the time. Uh, I don't want to go into too much detail, take too much time, but you end up in the film saying, we don't really know what happened. And that's very interesting because it, it's, a, it's a different side of your filmmaking imperative, I think, really, in this case, to say uh, the evidence is gone, uh, Joyce McKinney's version conflicts with that of other people, the tabloids, of course, are known to invent the truth as often as they report it, if not more so. We'll just end it on an inconclusive note, right? Yes and no. Uh, I don't think that is probably the right way to, to describe it, because there's ambiguity and there's ambiguity. If you're asking me is there ambiguity about whether or not Joyce McKinney flew over to England with a, a group of Confederates <laughs> um, uh, with the plan to liberate Kirk Anderson from the Mormon Church? I think there's a fair amount of evidence to suggest that's true. Yeah, I'm not saying that everything in the film is in doubt, but there are some key elements where you seem to step back and say, I don't know, or you decide. Yeah, there's many, 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 many mysteries 
in any kind of history, and this, of course, is an attempt to do on some crazy level a historical account of something that happened you know, some 30, 40 years ago. You know, what were they thinking? What was their inherent motivation? Did she really rape Kirk Anderson? I don't know. That's true. And were the photographs that uh, supposedly showed her to have been involved in maybe pornography or prostitution that were um, in the possession of a British tabloid but seemed to have disappeared in the intervening years, were those real photographs or were they doctored? I mean, that's that's an open question, too, a big open question in the movie. So I'm just saying it's a little different kind of movie uh, than The Thin Blue Line. But this all makes for a very nice segue into something I wanted to talk about today, which is one of your latest projects, the book that you have recently completed and that's coming out soon, A Wilderness of Error. Did you get a copy of it yet? No, no, no. I would love to have a copy. Oh, we should send you a copy. Okay, you will. I mean, I'd love to, and maybe we can talk in more detail about it after I've actually read it. But you mentioned it in our last interview. We talked a tiny bit about what you were trying to do, which was to go back and dig deep into what was, you know, a very famous legal case dating back to the 1970s, a murder, Jeffrey McDonald, uh, a doctor who was accused of having killed his wife and, and kids. Uh, I'm not going to give too many details of this because it's way too labyrinthine, but uh, he claimed that it was some Manson-style hippies who had come in, killed them, wounded him, and that he had bravely tried to fight them off and had survived. Um, after many trials and legal proceedings, back and forth, having been in and out of jail, he was ultimately uh, sentenced and uh, imprisoned for life, right? For three consecutive life terms. You have in this latest book, attempted to go back and reinvestigate that case, which is, I'll tell you, just reading uh, about the superficial details of it gave me a headache. It is that, as I say, labyrinthine, you know. Uh, and and obviously a lot of people have died. Um, some of the key people involved in the case have died. How do you do such a thing? Part of the problem with the McDonald case, I sometimes it's thought that people remain in prison because their cases are too complicated to understand. <laughs> and this is a case which is endlessly complicated. Simple on one level. I mean, the simplicity of it is, did he kill his family or didn't he? And it is my essay on the nature of evidence and proof. I should get you a copy as soon as possible, and we could talk about it if you want to, because it's probably, yes. I would like to. So so maybe um, it's premature to talk about the details. Yeah, uh, why don't you have a look at it first, and we can get, we can get on the phone again. I'll do that. Okay. Um, we'll do that, and uh, our listeners are here to, to witness your assurances. But I do want to ask about a couple of things involved in such an effort. Um, one is the nature of evidence. You know, a, a crime leaves behind a certain amount of material evidence and, uh, you know, memory, uh, which can only decay over time. It can't grow over time. I mean, methods of detection can get better. People can come forward and say things that they never said before, or evidence can be discovered. But in general, it can only decay, right? So as the decades go by, the leads dry up documents disappear, the people die, 
the memories get foggy, and so on and so forth. It's a really tough thing to go back and reinvestigate something like this, I would imagine, where so many people have come to mixed conclusions. Did you think when you undertook it that you could get to the bottom of it? Yes. Hmm. Well, I think that that every detective, if you become interested in the case, there's that hope that you can sort it out once and for all, that you can get to the bottom of it, that you can provide something close to proof. I mean, a murder case is not like a mathematical theorem. You can't put QED at the end of any investigation. The thin blue line is about the closest I could imagine coming to that kind of conclusion because there are essentially two investigations which converge. The investigation of David Harris, who eventually confessed to me that he was the killer, and the investigation of Randall Adams, which to me offered fairly conclusive proof that he was not the killer. So there are two things going for you. And they add up to a very powerful argument for his innocence. Yes. This is a different kind of case. Um, and one of the things that really does fascinate me, and one of the reasons I decided to write this book, is what is the difference between a case that sorts itself out? And sometimes I don't know if it's a good analogy. I think of mathematical series, series that's converge and those that diverge, and you don't know at first. Um, what is it about a case like, say, the assassination of JFK or the McDonald case that has led to such division and argument over the years? This is not to say that some people don't believe it's been proven one way or the other, but it's absolutely clear in both cases that the arguing goes on. And neither side is satisfied with the arguments that have been brought forward. That's something really interesting in and of itself. What is it about this kind of case that has produced such a quagmire? Uh, that's one question that the book addresses. Um, you told me in our last interview that you took up filmmaking in part because you were struggling with writing and decided to try something different. In recent years, you've started writing copiously. It's like the floodgates have opened, essays in the New York Times, books. But I, I did read your Twitter and notice that it was a struggle to complete this book, and you, you sort of gave us updates on your Twitter feed. On one day you said, it's going to be me or this book, but it's unclear who's going to win. <laughs> and then you said, I need to turn in my book, in all caps. And then, I can finish it. I know I can. I mean, I think I can. And then later, a month later, the end is in sight. And then finally, the book was handed in. That was in May, but you just told me before this interview began that you then went back and <laughs> fiddled with it some more. <laughs> was it a struggle simply because the you had waded into a quagmire um, in, in the case of Jeffrey McDonald? Well, I knew it was a quagmire going into it. I mean, there's not any doubt about Here's something that I'm quite impatient with, and it goes back to the Kuhn essay. 
This is Thomas Kuhn, the historian of science. Uh, you wrote a five-part essay in the New York Which Times. Which is going to be published by the University of Chicago Press as a book. <laughs> <laughs> the ashtray. The ashtray. And this, uh, I'm just doing this for our, the sake of our radio audience, Errol, so they could keep track of our conversation. Thomas Kuhn is a super famous historian of science. He wrote a, a book that really changed the way some people think about the progress of science called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. Um, that was very, very in vogue for quite a while. A lot of historians of science do not agree with it, and I think it's probably its influence has waned quite a bit. And you were a graduate student of Thomas Kuhn for a while at Princeton. You had a falling out. You dropped out of Princeton, but you have written um, this uh, multi-part essay that uh, gives your view, which is quite contrary to, to Kuhn's. Well, I was called a naive realist, and I've always wondered about it as a criticism. You, you, low-down, no-good, naive realist, you. There are instances where naive realism is entirely appropriate. Is it a naive realist think that there's an answer to the question of is Jeffrey McDonald guilty or innocent? Did he kill his family or did someone else kill his family? If that's naive realism, I'm all for it. <laughs> um, I don't want to hear about you know, the multiple worlds, interpretation of quantum mechanics. I don't want to hear about Schrodinger's cat. <laughs> I don't want to read about Rashomon. I don't want to hear any of that stuff. It does not interest me in this context because I believe there's an answer to that question and that in principle we can know the answer, that we can know about what happens or doesn't happen in the world around us. And the pursuit of those answers is important. You know, maybe we fail. But we don't fail, in my view, because there is no answer. Uh, there's no fact of the matter that everything is up for grabs. We fail usually because of ourselves, um, because we have acted in such a way as actually to obscure the world around us. I sometimes talk about my slime theory of humanity. That like a a snail, we leave this thick coating of slime as we move through the world that often obscures the world around us. <laughs> uh, people forget in a murder case that if you don't collect evidence in a timely fashion, it's just not going to sit there and wait for you to collect it. It may just disintegrate, disappear. Yeah, and. This story, the story of this murder case, is a story about the difficulties of investigating something where the evidence was not collected, where certain kinds of evidence was misinterpreted or ignored, and on and on and on. That's why it's called The Wilderness of Error. It comes from a quote, Edgar Allan Poe, a short story, William Wilson, his doppelganger story. And Poe writes, I was uh, looking for uh, an oasis of fatality amid a wilderness of error. And I have always interpreted that quote. It's always been, I mean, since I've been a little boy, a favorite quote. I was looking for some way to use it over the years. That in the sea of confusion, uh, error, lies, mistakes, 
false perceptions, etc., looking for some kind of piece of reality, some piece of bedrock that we can say, this is real, this is something that I know. And that's really at the heart. I've often said that my work is about error, and I'm fascinated by error, and indeed I am. Wilderness of Error is, as the title would imply, a study of all the errors that were made in the investigation of this case, all the confusions, all the deceits, um, all of the uh, failures to pursue leads. So, yeah, let me get you the book and we'll talk. <laughs> well, yes, we'll talk more about the, the specifics of the McDonald case and your your treatment of it. Let's keep talking, though, about some of the the principles you've raised, because they are very much at the core of your work. Um, first of all, just in my job as sort of docent uh, in the radio interview, I want to keep my listeners following this. The, the reason you brought up Thomas Kuhn um, and the reason he relates to everything you just said is that your gripe with his work is that he seemed to call into question the, the notion of scientific progress and, and objectivity uh, and verification in this idea he had of uh, scientific revolutions, one paradigm replacing another. He seemed to be saying that, you know, when one paradigm like Einsteinian relativity replaces another, like Newtonian mechanics, that the two are so different that it's really hard to compare them. It's really hard, in a way, to say which one is really right and you... No, it's not hard to say which one is really right, and it's not hard to compare them. People compare them all the time. No, no, I, I'm saying what Kuhn said in this idea of incommensurability, which is something that you took issue with that really sticks in your craw, is that these paradigms are so completely exclusive that it's very hard to talk about one being better than another, uh, comparing them because their terms are completely different. So I'm, all I'm saying... No, it goes, it goes beyond that. Okay, okay. Um, and I think that's the important part often that's lost in what he argued. And now people will say, well, he revised these views in subsequent editions of the book. Right. Um, yes, he revised the views. I think those views became even crazier and more confused. However, it's... A theory about history, can we know the past, uh, and what can we know about the past? Now, if people in the past are talking about completely different things, imagine they're speaking a completely different language from the language that we're speaking, and someone makes a claim that there can be no possible translation between that language of the past and the present time things jumped out at me. Well, how can he know that there can be no translation? You'd have to translate them to know that there can be no <laughs> translation. You'd have to understand them both to know that they are, to use his language, incommensurable. How can you possibly know that? It was a thesis that, for me, was inherently nonsensical. It contained uh, not so hidden contradiction. Gotcha, gotcha. And and uh, honestly, I was trying to say exactly what you just said. So so we're in complete agreement there about uh, the relevance of Kuhn to this discussion of whether or not the truth can be pursued 
and locate it, even if it's somewhere in the past, as in the uh, Jeffrey McDonald murder case. Um, but what I want to ask is this. You are a student of human folly, of human error, of human deception and self-deception, and, and, and innocent mistakes as well, when one wades into very complicated matters. Um, when you wade into a really complicated matter where the truth is extremely elusive, the between you and the truth of the Jeffrey McDonald case lie, I don't know, how many thousands of pages of, of legal docs and police records and things like that, some of them unclear, some of them undoubtedly contradictory. It would drive me mad, honestly. Um, but how do you wade in that, into that and ensure that you don't add to the errors by committing yourself to one position or the other, let's say, Errol? I mean, is that a worry of yours? Because um, the I stakes are pretty high. I committed myself to one position or uh-huh, the other. Uh-huh. I believe I actually tried to examine. Let me get the book to you because <laughs> I keep doing becomes, this. All right, it becomes a kind of odd discussion. Um, All righty. I I think you know very famously you know. Uh, Keats talked about negative capability, the idea of holding contradictory propositions in the mind at the same time. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether I would describe this as an example of negative uh, capability, but I would describe it as an effort to really examine some of the suppositions. I can't tell the story of the McDonald murder case as a whole because there's just too many, many aspects, too many facets, uh, it's unending. I'm going to be putting up a website with some of the documents, and the vo- documents, it's endless. There's mm-hmm. tens of thousands of pages of documents mm-hmm. on the page. And I invite anybody who wants to really dig in to have at it. Please be my guest. Um, all I'm trying to do is to take some 30 or 40 questions, and to examine them, to toss them over in my mind, and to ask the reader to join in with me in considering these things. Sure, sure. And uh, that's that's it. Well, um, I agree with you that I need to read the book before I talk about the, uh, the specifics, but I am interested in these general principles because they, again, cut to the heart of what you spent a lot of your life doing, Errol, uh, which is questioning what we know and how we know it. Um, there are times, would you agree with this? There are times when the more we gather data about, say, a, a historical incident, the more we try to determine what happened, the foggier things sometimes seem to get? No. No. There's this idea that somehow that if you investigate something endlessly, that it will lead to some kind of muddle. <laughs> um <laughs> There's this line at the very beginning of my short film, The Umbrella Man, which was in the New York Times. Um, It's Tink Thompson referring to a John Updike essay about some kind of quantum phenomena that uh, occurs when you look at things closely. The Thin Blue Line was looked at closely. And I can tell you that as I dug deeper and deeper and deeper into it, could I answer every question about the case? No. 
are there dark areas uh, where I have no definitive explanation? Uh, yes. But can I say with confidence that David Harris killed Officer Robert Wood and Randall Adams was home in bed when that shooting occurred? I can't. Uh, I am not in a muddle about it in any way. And obsessive investigation, compulsive obsessive investigation, produced answers, not a muddle. Um, I, I think it's this, this kind of nonsense thinking from people, first of all, who never do this kind of thing and um, uh, have been influenced in some nefarious way by these postmodern ideas that there is no such thing as truth or truth is relative or culturally determined, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I respectfully disagree. Truth is truth. There's a world out there. Things happen in that world. And, you know, good old-fashioned epistemology, we try to discover uh, something about that world. We try to obtain knowledge. And are we always successful? No. Do we make mistakes? Yes. Does that mean that knowledge is impossible? Don't be silly. No, no, no. Uh, you won't get any argument out of me there. Uh, and, of course, I want to uh, come to your defense against charges of naive realism, because a lot of your work is actually about how hard it is to take things at face value uh, i.e. photographs. Simply looking at a photograph does not reveal a whole lot without additional information uh, in many cases or in all cases, uh, as you pointed out in your most recent book, Believing is Seeing. Um, so, yeah, yeah, Errol. No, By the I way, I think it had a bad title. <laughs> and I, the title was imposed on me. I shouldn't complain, but um, I wanted to call it The Cow is Thinking Nothing. <laughs> which is a long story. And now I suppose if I had to choose between The Cow is Thinking Nothing and another title, I would call it Disbelieving is Seeing, which I think comes closer to the true hidden story in the book. Um, you know, I'm sad that the book, I think, is seen as a book about photography. Of course, it is a book about photography on some level, but I think it's a book about a whole lot more about what we believe to be true and under what circumstances and how we can deceive ourselves how we can be in error uh, about what we see or what we think we see or what we know what we think we know vision is interesting because it's considered privileged we think I saw it it must be so mm-hmm and I would say this is a book about how we saw it, and who knows what <laughs> We have to investigate. I think we always have to investigate. It's the investigator in me. Uh, knowledge is never handed over to us on a silver platter. It's invariably the result of some kind of effort, some attempt to investigate and to find things out. Well, you know, you, you, you have said that you are happiest when investigating something. Yes, um, Which implies that you are not necessarily happiest when you have concluded the investigation. 
Um, no, I think it's a, it's always disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like you finish an investigation. What do you do? You go and find another thing to investigate. <laughs> That's how it works. Um, well, you know, if I'm, I'm sort of connecting the dots in this interview, you said some things about believing in truth, believing that the truth can, in principle, be found, uh, which is nice, nicely aligns with the idea in physics that information is not normally destroyed. Information is always preserved. Um, but that doesn't mean that the information can practically be uncovered or uh, reconstructed. I mean, there are times when, for for practical reasons, it's not available to us and it never will be, right? And- well, we can't know. Here's, here's the example that I'm most fond of. You can imagine a historical event, you know, a long, long time ago, say the Battle of Hastings, that's a good thousand years, plus or minus a few years ago. Um, what exactly happened to King Harold? Well, we have the Bayou Tapestry, and we have other uh, historical artifacts to help us decide what happened to King Harold. And there's a fact of the matter. You know, something happened to King Harold. He died. You know, this is going back to 1066. It's a long time ago. We know he's not alive today. Something happened to him. And in principle, we should be able to figure this out. But here's one very important point, that history is perishable. Exactly. If we lose all of the evidence from the Battle of Hastings, say, we may not be able to determine what actually happened to King Harold. But here's another rub. We can never know that we've lost all the information of the Battle of Hastings. That's the magic of epistemology, that we can never know that there isn't some lockbox hidden in some moor in England that will give us new, unexpected information about the past. We can never know um, whether new evidence will be uncovered, whether it will be found. And in principle, we always have to act as though we can know, and that if we look hard enough, we can find the evidence that will answer the questions that we have about the past. Well, this takes me back to tabloid, because it seemed to me uh, that you decided it was okay in that film not to pursue the investigation as far as you could have. I mean, there are some aspects of the, the McKinney case that you, are, you seem to be content to leave uh, undecided in that film. You could have gone batshit crazy and pursued every little detail. Now, I realize the stakes in that case are incredibly tiny compared to a murder, you know. So it's probably not worth it. But it was an interesting film in your oeuvre because it was Errol Morris saying, in a way, I don't know, and that's fine. So let me get you the book, and let's talk. <laughs> How's that? Okay, sure. No, I'm not even talking about Jeffrey and McDonald anymore. I know, but l- let me get you the book, because I'm, I'm now I'm curious what you think of it. Great, great. Um, Errol, I just want to throw in a couple of seemingly random questions that that have occurred to me while watching your films. Um, There was a scene in, um, or a shot in uh, Mr. Death, 
uh, your film about this guy, Fred Lucher, a self-styled uh, investigator himself who uh, went to Auschwitz to try to determine whether there were indeed real gas chambers with cyanide gas in them and determined to his satisfaction <laughs> that there were not, there was not cyanide gas used. He was wrong, I think we can say clearly. Uh, and in the course of the film, he comes off as a very sadly deluded guy. But there's a shot of what I take to be one of the gas chambers with an eye peering in through a peephole? Yes. Was that your eye? Um, it was not, because we wanted a more Germanic eye. Wow. So um, it was not my eye, but it could have been. You are meticulous, aren't you? A more <laughs> Germanic eye. <laughs> I mean, all we see is the eyeball. <laughs> I, I remember it. there was quite a discussion about what eye to use, and we <laughs> felt that that was the appropriate eye, but it was not mine. What did that eye mean to you? Um, it is it is the fact that that someone was watching all of this stuff, and uh, the fact that these doors to the gas chambers had peepholes is you know one more disturbing detail about. Auschwitz and about the Holocaust. I mean, in many ways, I, I'm a, a voyeur or I'm a person looking into the past. Yeah, I thought it was a powerful image. That's why I used it. Mm. Well, it was. And yes, I think it does have a certain ambiguity to it. And um, the best metaphors always depend on ambiguity. <laughs> Just like the best investigations depend on defeating ambiguity, metaphors are really the opposite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you probably don't remember this because you have done so many things and talked to so many people since we, we last spoke, but our interview ended with me talking about two great little phrases that your characters or your subjects have um, said in two of your films— one of them was in Vernon, Florida, when one of the guys you were interviewing in this small Florida town was talking about sort of the mystery of the universe and had a little joke about two sailors looking out over the ocean and one of them saying, there's a lot of water out there. And the other guy said, yeah, and that's just the water on top. Yes. Um, obviously, there's so much more beneath the surface. And the other line was from Mr. Death. It was a chemist who was... Uh, discrediting Fred Lucher's studies of cyanide gas residues in the gas chambers at Auschwitz by saying one of the things that, or the big thing that Lucher had done wrong was to crush up a whole bunch of uh, uh, of material from the walls of the gas chambers that went way below the surface of the brick and into the brick itself, and that diluted the samples to the extent that if there was cyanide residue, it would never be found and he said, if you're going to go look for it, you're going to look on the surface only. There's no reason to go deep because it's not going to be there. I almost think of those two lines as sort of, in some remarkable way, demarcating the kind of questions you're asking in your well, movies. Well, guess what? What? 
Uh, I'm making a movie about Donald Rumsfeld as we speak. I've uh, interviewed Rumsfeld for 36 hours now. Holy crap. And um, one of the central metaphors, uh, Rumsfeld is, of course, famous for this expression, the known knowns, the known unknowns, the unknown unknowns, etc. Yes. And I kept thinking of a way of talking about that, and guess what I went back to? Albert Bitterling in Vernon, Florida, and the joke that he tells of the two sailors looking out over the ocean. (laughs) Because it is maybe, in a way, the one line central to everything that I do. And I think it's really, really funny that you just brought it up because we've been talking about it unendingly in this office in the last week and a half. Um, Yeah, the two sailors, uh, one says, there's a whole lot of water out there, and the other says, yeah, and that's just the top of it. (laughs) I love it. And um, I love it, too, actually. I think it's one of the great quotes. I loved Albert Bitterling. I quote him in lines that never even appear in the movie, because I just love, love so much of what he said to me. Another great Albert Bitterling truism, he said, you don't break the rules, the rules break you. <laughs> and, um, but yes, um, it's, the, the, the ocean does become a metaphor for epistemology. And I wish I could say that I thought of this metaphor. I owe it all. Probably I owe my entire career to Albert Bitterling. <laughs> but, um, yes, I love, I love that story, and I'm putting it to use as we speak. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, but I can't help thinking uh, that it's case-dependent, that, that, yes, it's, it's good to go below the surface sometimes. But on the other hand, as this chemist and Mr. Death points out, sometimes things are on the surface. And going deep will only mislead you. <laughs> <laughs> That's a different movie, perhaps. Well, um, Errol, it's v- fascinating to hear that you've interviewed Donald Rumsfeld because during your movie, The Fog of War, with Robert McNamara, I thought the whole time about Donald Rumsfeld and how he is and is not like Robert McNamara. So I'm just, I'm kind of like gape jawed right now that you actually got 30. 30 odd hours with Donald Rumsfeld and I can't wait to see how he is and is not like Robert McNamara. Well, it's coming up. Errol, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Well, thank you very much for doing this. A pleasure. That reminds me of the story about the two sailors. They were looking at the water and one says, it's a lot of water out there. And the other guy says, yeah, that's just the top of it. And if you missed part one of that two-part series with Errol Morris, you can listen to it on our website at 7thAvenueProject.com. Or you can go to iTunes if that's how you roll. Just search on the name of the show, 7th Avenue Project. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly, signing off until next week.